Hello and welcome to PassPack Podcast, your audio passport from physician assistant student to certified and beyond with your host, Rebecca Harrell, MPA, PAC. Today, our destination is a high-yield pediatric medicine review based on the EOR content blueprint. Sit back, relax, and let's get to it. Hey everyone, it's Becca. As you know, we'll be diving into pediatrics today, going in descending order of the contents covered on the pediatric EOR blueprint, and followed up at the end with a mixed pediatric rapid review. Let's begin with dermatology, which makes up 15% of the EOR. While working at an urgent care, you visit a 12-year-old male presenting with his mom for a new rash on his legs. History reveals the rash developed after he was playing outside near a stream in his backyard. Visualization of the rash reveals erythematous linear distributions with overlying vesicles and bullae configured in streak-like patterns. The patient says they're pretty itchy and you visualize excoriations to the site. Suspecting this patient was exposed to a trifoliate plant that possesses the allergen urushiol. What is the first-line pharmacologic therapy you recommend to ease his symptoms? High-potency topical steroids like clobidazole propanate twice a day for no more than 14 days. High-potency steroids are useful for treatments of many intensely pruritic or inflamed dermatological conditions on the body, especially in a patient like ours who have allergic contact dermatitis, likely from poison ivy. Suspect this diagnosis in a patient with a history of being outdoors and visualization of various patterns matching the suspected allergy. For example, someone allergic to nickel might have an itchy vesicular rash where their pants buttons are, and someone with poison ivy may tend to have this streaky appearance to the rash on either their upper extremities or lower extremities from where those leaves brushed up against them. Typically, you're going to see Koebner's phenomenon, which is that streak-like configuration of the dermatitis secondary to scratching or rubbing or even just spreading the allergen away from the site of inoculation. Allergic contact dermatitis is self-limited and should resolve on its own within a few weeks after the exposure is identified and removed. On the body, you can use high-potency steroids for no more than two weeks for symptomatic treatment. Longer than this, and that patient runs a risk of developing depigmentation in the area and thinning of that skin. On the face, you're going to need low-potency steroids like hydrocortisone. If you need to use steroids for longer than two weeks on the body, then you can think about something that's mid-potency like triamcinolone. Your pediatric patient with a history of seizures arrives to the ER with mucosal erosions and severe conjunctivitis following a period of fever and malaise. Physical exam reveals positive Nikolsky sign on his face and thorax, which covers about 8% of his body surface area. Upon his history, you found he started a new medication for his seizures about eight weeks ago. What diagnosis do you suspect? Steven Johnson syndrome. SJS is a blistering dermatologic condition that is typically associated with drug reactions or infection. The most common cause of SJS is starting new medications, and notorious offenders include carbamazepine, lamotrigine, sulfa, allopurinol, and NSAIDs. Infections are the second most common cause of SJS, most notably mycoplasma pneumoniae. Suspect this in a patient with prodromal fever, malaise, within eight weeks of starting a new medication with subsequent eruption of bulla and vesicles that involve both the skin and at least two mucosal sites that cover less than 10% body surface area. 
SJS is more common in children, while TEN, or toxic epidermal necrolysis, is more common in elderly patients. Your differential should include erythema multiform and toxic epidermal necrolysis. Erythema multiform, while similar, is not considered the same as SJS. This is actually a type 4 hypersensitivity that can also break out on the body and mucosa. However, it's far less severe than SJS and is more commonly related to infections rather than drugs, such as the herpes simplex virus. Skin lesions in erythema multiform are described as non-paritic, targetoid with dull violet dusky centers and associated with vesicles and central bullae. Nikolsky's sign here will be negative, which means that when you pull down next to the lesion, it's not going to separate that top layer of the skin as it does in SJS and TEN. Alternatively, TEN, or again, toxic epidermal necrolysis, can be thought of the same as SJS, but this will cover over 30% of the body surface area, not the less than 10 like in SJS. Treatment for both SJS and TEN include discontinuing the offending medication and referral to a burn center where they will receive similar management as those with major burns, such as debridement and wound care, fluid, electrolyte management, and nutritional support. Treatment for erythema multiform includes systemic steroids if it's severe enough, and any ocular involvement would warrant immediate ophthalmic referral. If erythema multiform is recurrent, daily antivirals like acyclovir can be considered. Your patient is a four-year-old unvaccinated male who presents with a rash that began on his scalp and seems to spread down his body. His mom states prior to this he had a mild fever, but now the fever is pretty high. Physical reveals a young boy in no acute distress who is coughing with a stuffy but runny nose and bloodshot eyes that are watering. What oral mucosal finding might you have visualized had this patient come during his prodromal febrile period? Coplic spots. Coplic spots or coplic spots are associated with measles, which is also known as rubiola or first disease. These are very small grayish macules with surrounding peak erythema on the buccal mucosa that almost appear like flecks of sand in the cheek. This usually occurs four days prior to the rash onset and might be completely gone by the time the patient presents to you. Rubiola should be considered in young patients without a history of vaccination who present with the three C's, cough, coryza, and conjunctivitis, with red maculopapular exanthem spreading cephalocotyly, aka that's starting from the scalp and then spreading to the torso or extremities, and that's going to become confluent and then desquamate. You can definitively diagnose this with a serological confirmation with the serum IgM antibody. Treatment will be supportive as this is due to a single-stranded RNA virus in the family paramyxoviridae and morbillivirus. Differentials for rubiola include the other numbered exanthems, most importantly, second, third, fifth, and sixth disease. Skipping fourth disease, as this is not commonly tested on, can you name the numbered exanthems starting from first disease, which is rubiola? First disease is rubiola or measles. Second disease is scarlet fever or scarlatina. Third disease is rubella or three-day measles. Fifth disease is erythema infectiosum or slap cheek fever. And sixth disease is roseola infantum, also known as exanthema subentium. All five of these numbered examples are extremely important to know and high yield for many exams. I highly recommend creating a comparison chart to highlight the differences and similarities between these. I'll go through a few high yield comparisons first here to help get you started. Which ones present with high fever? First, second, and sixth disease, which is rubiola, scarlet fever, and roseola. Which ones present with low fever? 
third disease and fifth disease, which is rubella and erythema infectiosum, which can be treated with antibiotics. Second disease only, as this is scarlet fever caused by strep, which is the only one that starts on the neck and trunk first before spreading to the face and extremities. Sixth disease or roseola, which have immunization. First disease and third disease, which is rubiola and rubella, which are associated with oral lesions. First disease, rubiola, has coplic spots. Third disease, rubella, has Forsheimer spots. And sixth disease, roseola, has Nagayama spots. What are some complications of each? First disease, or rubiola, most commonly causes diarrhea, but the most common cause of death from this is pneumonia. A high-yield complication to remember is the development of encephalitis up to eight years later called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis. Second disease, or scarlet fever, can lead to group A strep complications like rheumatic fever, heart disease, acute glomerulonephritis, streptococcal toxic shock syndrome, or reactive arthritis, and even PANDAS, which is pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders associated with group A strep. Third disease, or rubella, typically is not dangerous in adults or children that acquire it in the community, but this can lead to severe harm if exposed in utero and is considered one of the torch syndromes. Congenital rubella can lead to fetal death, premature delivery, hearing loss, developmental or growth delay, congenital heart disease, and even ophthalmic defects. This also can present with the blueberry muffin rash in neonates, along with another common torch syndrome, congenital CMV. Fifth disease, or erythema infectiosum, is also typically not dangerous, but this can lead to aplastic crisis in those with hemolytic anemias like sickle cell disease or G6PD deficiency. Sixth disease, or roseola, is typically benign, but can cause extremely high fevers, which make up for one-third of the causes of all febrile seizures. Aside from our numbered exanthems, there are some many high-yield pediatric exanthems that can be added to the comparison chart, such as varicella, molluscum contagiosum, Kawasaki's disease, and hand-foot-mouth disease. Adding these differentials to the equation, let's do some more comparisons. What are considered the desquamating rashes? Measles, scarlet fever, rubella, and Kawasaki's disease are all desquamating rashes. Of note, erythema multiform, SJS, TEN, staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome, and toxic shock syndrome can also cause desquamating rashes. Make sure you're reading your history really closely for your unique identifiers. What is associated with a strawberry tongue? Second disease or scarlet fever and Kawasaki, which is also known as mucocutaneous lymph node syndrome, which can lead to cardiac conditions. Second disease or scarlet fever can lead to rheumatic heart disease. Congenital third disease or rubella can lead to congenital heart defects like patent ductus arteriosus and Kawasaki's disease is high yield for causing coronary artery disease, which can lead to vesicopapular lesions. Varicella, or chickenpox, and hand-foot-mouth disease, Coxsackie virus A, and sometimes molluscum contagiosum can appear this way, but those are mostly waxy and flesh-colored lesions with a central umbilication. Varicella will lead to crops of grouped vesicles in various stages of healing, and these are commonly described as dewdrop on a rose petal. Hand-foot-mouth disease will show vesicular ulcers in the mouth and on the palms and soles. Your patient is an 8-year-old, unvaccinated male who presents to the urgent care with his parents due to waking up with painful swelling on one side of his face around his cheek following complaining of an earache with fever last night. 
Visualization of his oral mucosa reveals erythema and edema surrounding the Stenson duct. What viral offender do you suspect is causing this patient's current infection? Paramyxovirus. This patient is presenting with mumps, which is a viral illness that typically affects the parotid gland but can really affect any gland. Suspect this in any patient without their mumps vaccine who presents with a unilateral parotid swelling and tenderness that develops within two days of a nonspecific flu-like prodrome. Patients may also present with orchitis and even pancreatitis as these are complications seen from mumps. Treatment is supportive as this is self-limited and therapy should focus on reducing inflammatory pain and maintaining appropriate hydration. Vaccinations for mumps are included in the MMR series, which can be given in two doses around one years old and again between four and six years old. Your patient is a 15-year-old female who presents to the clinic with paritic salmon-colored papules that started on her trunk, seeming to follow her skin's cleavage lines, but now is also affecting her palms and soles. She stated prior to the spread of the rash, she had one single rather large patch of erythema that now has regressed a little bit and has some surrounding scale at the margins. What diagnosis do you suspect? Pityriasis rosea. This is a self-limiting inflammatory rash with an unknown etiology and usually affects adolescents which may have a history of recent viral illness. Suspect this in a patient that describes the initial herald patch that presents before any other lesions. The pattern of lesions are classically described as a Christmas tree distribution as they follow those skin lines. Because this rash affects the palms and soles, remember to rule out your must-not-miss differential with history or lab workup, which is secondary syphilis. Treatment for pityriasis is supportive and pruritus can be relieved with antihistamines or even topical steroids. Lesions typically fade over time, but there might be some associated post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Your five-year-old pediatric patient arrives to the clinic with her mom due to intense itching on her hands that is getting worse over time. Physical reveals small, linear lesions and associated excoriations in the webbing of her fingers. Scraping this lesion and subsequent microscopy confirms your suspected diagnosis. What is the first-line treatment for this patient? Permethrin 5% Cream. This is a first line for anyone at least two months or older presenting with scabies infection. Suspect this in a patient with intense pruritus, typically worse at night, with evidence of linear burrowing and papular lesions, typically found in the web spaces of the fingers and toes. Because this is so intensely pruritic, hemorrhagic excoriations might be seen as well. Confirm the diagnosis of scabies by directly visualizing either mites, eggs, or feces under microscopy. Treat the entire family and close contacts with permethrin and repeat the dose 10 days later. Second-line treatments include PO ivermectin, and historically, they used topical lindane, but this is no longer recommended due to the neurologic toxicity. Of note, topical permethrin is also the first-line treatment for pediculosis, which is called lice. All right, we will get into more high-yield derm later. Next up is H-E-E-N-T, which makes up 15% of the EOR. Your patient is a four-year-old female that returns to the clinic for the third time for another ear infection. Her mom states she had tried to treat this at home with leftover medications, but now she has unmanageable pain, fever, and otorrhea. Physical reveals her affected ear is antiverted and there is tenderness and swelling of the post-oracle area. What is the first-line treatment for your suspected diagnosis? IV ampicillin sobactam with possible gentamicin or another aminoglycoside that covers MRSA and the beta-lactamase-producing gram-negatives is going to be the first line for your pediatric patients with mastoiditis. Mastoiditis is a complication of acute otitis media infection that spreads into the mastoid air cells. 
This diagnosis can be confirmed on CT, which will show a coalescence of the mastoid air cells and possible subperiosteal abscess. Culture of the middle ear fluid should be obtained so empiric broad spectrums can be de-escalated to the agent that will tackle the offending pathogen. Most common organisms causing acute otitis media is H. flu, MCAT, and S. pneumoniae. If ampicillin sulbactam is not on your answer choices, Consider choosing IV cephalosporins with vancomycin if MRSA is suspected. If there are any improvement in your patient's condition following empiric therapy, consider a myringotomy. Should a patient have intracranial complications, cholesteatoma, granulation tissue, or if there's no improvement following myringotomy, immediate mastoidectomy is recommended. Your 17-year-old female patient presents to the ER with her parents after waking up this morning with her eyes practically glued shut from discharge. She stated last night she had some irritation in her eyes, but now they are very red with purulent drainage. Her medical history is unremarkable aside from contact lens use. What treatment should she receive? While bacterial conjunctivitis is generally self-limited, antibiotics can be prescribed, especially in those with contact lens use due to the common offending organism of Pseudomonas aeruginosa that can be effectively treated with fluoroquinolones. In a patient with a history of sexual risk factors or neonates with bilateral copious purulence, suspect Neisseria gonorrhea and treat accordingly as this is considered site-threatening. The most common bacterial causes of conjunctivitis in children are the same as the most common organisms in sinusitis and acute otitis media, which are strep pneumo, H. flu, and MCAT. Your patient is a 12-year-old male who presents to the ER due to extreme orbital swelling that is preventing him from opening his eye. History is unremarkable aside from a double sickening event about a week ago, which was treated with amoxicillin that he did not finish. He reports painful and deep tenderness of the affected area with painful ocular range of motion. When looking at him from above, you note proptosis in the affected eye as well. What diagnosis do you suspect? Orbital cellulitis. This patient should be treated for orbital cellulitis, which is a vision-threatening complication of sinusitis as the pathogens migrate through that ethmoid sinus into the orbit and infiltrate the fat and muscles in the posterior orbital septum. Because this is a complication of sinusitis, typically the most common pathogens are similar. However, the diagnosis is actually more commonly associated with staph aureus. Treatment includes admission and delivery of IV broad-spectrum antibiotics covering for beta-lactamase-producing gram-negatives and MRSA, such as IV vancomycin with a third-gen cephalosporin. Your three-year-old unvaccinated patient presents to the ER following an acute onset of fever of 102 Fahrenheit with difficulty breathing. He is sitting forward in a tripod position, hyperextending his neck and drooling. He has strider and is crying. What should be done next? Secure the airway. This patient is at high risk of losing his airway and the patient requires endotracheal intubation first and foremost. Following securing the airway, if necessary, you can confirm the suspicion of epiglottitis initially with a lateral head and neck x-ray, which shows the thumbprint sign, and is definitively diagnosed with visualization on laryngoscope showing an enlarged cherry red epiglottis. The most common cause of epiglottitis in an unvaccinated individual is H. influenzae type B, but those with vaccinations suspect a streptococcal infection. Anytime there is risk of losing the airway, securing your airway is first step. Remember the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. There is typically a pretty rapid response to IV third-gen cephalosporins like ceftriaxone or cefotaxime, so intubation is usually going to be less than a week. Differentials to keep in mind include laryngotracheitis, pertussis, 
peritonsillar abscess, and retropharyngeal abscess, which we'll get into a little bit more later. For now, we'll touch on infectious diseases, which makes up 12% of the EOR. Your patient is a 17-year-old female who presents to urgent care with new-onset rash following empiric treatment last week for her fever, malaise, and sore throat. Physical reveals bilateral cervical lymphadenopathy posteriorly and tonsillar exudate. She has diffuse macular papular rash and abdominal palpation reveals enlarged mass in the left upper quadrant. How should you confirm your suspected diagnosis? Heterophile antibody test, also known as the mononuclear spot test. Epstein-Barr virus is the most common cause of infectious mononucleosis and should be suspected in teenagers that present with symptoms similar of strep throat, but will also have any or all of the following differences. Posterior cervical lymphadenopathy, splenic enlargement, maculopapular rash eruption following amoxicillin if originally treated for strep, and the diagnosis again can be confirmed with monospot and the peripheral smear might show atypical lymphocytes. Treatment is supportive, but patients should be instructed to avoid contact sports for at least four weeks following infection due to the high risk of splenic rupture. Your eight-month-old patient arrives to the ER due to her new-onset distressing cough following a few weeks of low-grade fever and rhinorrhea. Exam reveals an audible whooping sound of inspiration following an intense paroxysm of coughing. Parents state they brought him in after they saw he was coughing so hard he made himself throw up and once started to turn blue. At this time, considering he is maintaining his own airway, what treatment do you now recommend? Azithromycin first with Bactrim as a second line. This should be initiated the second you suspect a patient has pertussis or whooping cough which is a highly contagious respiratory illness caused by the organism Bordetella pertussis. Suspect this in a young patient, especially with a history of daycare admission, who has history of the catarrhal stage consisting of coryza, cough, fatigue for about one to two weeks with a mild fever, who later goes into the paroxysmal stage of the classic whooping cough that might be associated with post-tussive emesis. The last phase of pertussis is the convalescent phase, which is when the symptom severity finally gradually begins to subside. Prevention of pertussis can be achieved with the DTaP vaccination, which consists of five doses at months two, four, six, sometime between 15 and 18 months, and then again at four to six years, and then boosting with a Tdap vaccine at least once between 11 and 18 years old. In pregnancy, patients should receive a Tdap each pregnancy around 27 to 36 weeks to protect the neonates that are too young to receive their Dtap vaccinations. While treatment may not decrease patients' illness severity if given after seven days of onset, it will still decrease the spread to others, and so it should be initiated still. Be cautious providing macrolides to any newborns as this is a risk for pyloric stenosis. Your patient is a 12-year-old female who developed a non-painful, slightly pruritic, gradually expanding circular area of erythema with central clearing that feels warm to palpation. Medical history is unremarkable, but history does reveal she went hiking with her Girl Scout troop a few weeks ago. Given this suspected diagnosis, what treatment do you recommend? You would choose doxycycline with second line being amoxicillin, 
Doxycycline, 100 milligrams POBID for 10 days is the first line for patients over 8 years old with Lyme disease. Amoxicillin should be only used as treatment if the patients are pregnant or they have an allergy to doxycycline or if they're younger than 8. If your patient presents without any signs of Lyme disease but has evidence of an engorged tick and or over 36 hours of that tick being attached, you can give one dose of prophylactic doxycycline within 72 hours of tick removal. Lyme's disease is caused by a gram-negative spirochete, Borrelia burgdorferi, and is spread by the deer tick. This disease can be broken up into three stages. First stage is localized disease and occurs within one to two weeks of exposure and presents the classic bullseye rash, also known as erythema migrans, as we see in our patient. There may also be constitutional symptoms present like fever, chills, headache, fatigue, myalgias, arthralgias, and lymphadenopathy. Second stage is disseminated disease, and this can occur days to months following the exposure with the highest yield manifestations as bilateral Bell's palsy and an AV nodal block. Third stage is considered late disease and represents peripheral neuropathy, migratory polyarthritis, or even development of encephalopathy. Of no, in those with neurologic Lyme disease, PO or IV ceftriaxone cefotaxime or penicillin G for 28 days is recommended. In those with suspected Lyme disease, diagnosis is made up of a two-tiered testing approach. The initial test will be the enzyme immunoassay or immunofluorescence assay, and if needed for confirmation, the second test will be with the IgM or IgG western blot test. In patients that have a high-yield differential in your tick disorders is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, and in this case, doxycycline is the first-line choice even in patients under 8 years old. All right, let's move on to pulmonology, which makes up 12% of the EOR. While working in the ER this fall, you visit a two-month-old patient with high fever, thick nasal discharge, and decreased PO intake for about three days. Physical reveals auditory, polyphonic wheezing, and intercostal retractions. Vital signs are notable for a respiratory rate of 66. Chest x-ray shows hyperinflation and peribronchial cuffing. Nasal wash for culture and antigen assay is pending. Given your suspected diagnosis, what should you do next? Hospitalize the patient. Infants with acute bronchiolitis, most commonly caused by RSV in the fall and winter months, should be hospitalized if any of the following are present. Toxic appearing or poor feeding, respiratory distress seen with nasal flaring, dyspnea, or costal retractions, or even apnea, oxygen saturation less than 95%, respiratory rate over 70, or age under 3 months old. You should also hospitalize if chest x-ray shows atelectasis or if parents are unable to care for the patient properly at their house. Diagnosis is with nasal washing for RSV culture and antigen assay. Treatment for acute bronchiolitis is supportive, including nasal suctioning, humidified oxygen, and antipyretics to reduce the fever. The only proven therapy to improve this diagnosis is oxygen. In patients that are immunocompromised, consider giving ribavirin. Palivizumab prophylaxis can also be started in the fall for immunocompromised or premature infants. And remember, the highest risk for apnea from this is in premature patients under two months old. You are visiting a four-year-old patient with limited past medical history due to inconsistent caregivers who has been brought in by his foster family for the third time this year for sinusitis. Physical reveals wheezing and cough with visualization of nasal polyps on exam. He is lower than expected height and weight for his age. What should be done to diagnose this patient with a suspected autosomal recessive disorder? (music) 
quantitative sweat chloride test. In patients with suspected cystic fibrosis, diagnosis can be made with chloride over 60 on sweat test in the setting of either chronic pulmonary disease, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, or a positive family history. Second-line testing can be done to prove inadequate pancreatic exocrine functions like fecal elastase. Cystic fibrosis is a common autosomal recessive disorder that results from defects in the sodium chloride channels. If ever asked for the most common organism causing pulmonary infections in these patients, the answer is Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Suspect this diagnosis in any neonate with meconium ileus at birth or loss of vas deferens. Given the routine testing in neonates, typically patients will not wait this long for a diagnosis. However, in a patient with a lack of resources or easily lost to follow-up, consider this diagnosis if recurrent sinusitis or pulmonary infections are occurring. Consider this diagnosis in any child with nasal polyps on exam. Given the salt wasting, patients might even present with hypochloremia metabolic alkalosis. Management is extensive, including medications to clear secretions, chest physiotherapy, anti-inflammatories, bronchodilators, and replacement of pancreatic enzymes and fat-soluble vitamins, and even eventual lung transplant. Time for cardiology, accounting for 10% of this EOR. Your patient with past medical history of congenital sensory neurohearing loss presents to the ER following a syncopal event when running on the playground. EKG reveals a QT of 465 milliseconds. What is the first line to blunt catecholamines in this diagnosis? Beta blockers. These are the first line for patients with prolonged QT syndrome, which is typically asymptomatic, but might present with palpitations, seizure, or even syncopal events. In children 1 to 15 years old, QT interval is considered prolonged if it's greater than 460 milliseconds. There are three main types of long QT depending on where the defect is, either long QT1, 2, or 3. Those with long QT3 or LQT3 typically require cardiac pacing or even ICD given the risk of increased torsades and sudden cardiac death. Your young patient with an unremarkable history arrives to her annual physical exam before starting kindergarten and is found to have a short systolic murmur that is more intense at the apex when she is lying down that has a musical vibratory quality. Blood pressure and pulse pressures are normal and she is in no acute distress. What diagnosis do you suspect? Innocent or stills murmur. This is a murmur of childhood that is not associated with any cardiac disease and should lessen or go away over time. Differentials to rule out include coarctation of the aorta and patent ductus arteriosus. Coarctation of the aorta can be ruled down by comparing the upper and lower blood pressures and pulse strength, and PDA can be ruled down by calculating the pulse pressure, in which a wide pulse pressure might suggest a PDA. If there are suspicions or a patient has an abnormal blood pressure gradient or weak wide pulse pressure, refer to cardiology. Your pediatric patient presents to his two-month checkup and his parents express worry over finding it very hard to feed him. They state he has difficult feeding and tends to turn blue anytime he feeds or cries. Auscultation of the heart reveals a harsh systolic ejection murmur overlying the left upper sternal border with a palpable thrill. What is your suspected diagnosis? Tetralogy of Fallot. This is the most common cyanotic congenital heart defect that has four distinct components which can be remembered by the mnemonic PROV, P-R-O-V pulmonary stenosis, right ventricular hypertrophy, overriding aorta, and ventricular septal defect. Suspect this in an infant with cyanosis when crying or feeding or even in an older toddler that commonly squats, and that is going to increase their SVR or systemic vascular resistance and counteract those TET spells. 
The defects of the heart result in a harsh systolic ejection murmur over the left upper sternal border that has a palpable thrill as we discussed. During the workup, chest x-ray will be notable for a boot-shaped heart, which might be described as a cardiac silhouette with an upturned apex and decreased pulmonary markings. To definitively diagnose this, order an echocardiogram as you would do for nearly all other structural cardiac conditions. Initial treatment aims to counteract these TET spells by increasing this SVR or systemic vascular resistance and decreasing the PVR or peripheral vascular resistance by placing the patient in a knee-to-chest position and administering oxygen or even morphine if you need to calm the patient down and decrease that tachycardia. Depending on the severity, the next step would be surgical correction, which is going to be elective unless there are recurrent episodes of severe unremitting hypoxemia. All right, we'll hit up some more cardio later, but now let's move on to GI, which makes up for 10% of the EOR. Your six-year-old pediatric patient is brought to the clinic due to fecal incontinence and constant streaking in his underwear. His parents state he had no difficulties when toilet training, but since he started school last year, he seems to be leaking fecal matter. When trying to get him to use the restroom, he cries and refuses. Physical exam reveals a large left-sided mass an abdominal x-ray shows evidence of extensive stool burden. What is this patient's diagnosis? Encoparesis. Encoparesis is typically seen in young school-aged children with a history of completed toilet training and a new onset fear or resistance to toileting due to the fear of pain or even embarrassment at school. Because they have chronic stool withholding, the distension of their rectum will subsequently alter the neuromuscular response to fecal urges and there will be leakage around the impacted hardened stool, presenting as incontinence and possibly even a persistent odor of fecal matter surrounding the patient. The first-line treatment includes patient and parent education and positive support to break that cycle of withholding, such as scheduling regular toileting times. To reduce the stool burden, initial daily osmotic laxatives like polyethylene glycol for six months is well tolerated and useful to reduce the painful hard stools and encourage regular stooling and neuromuscular recovery. Should there be a large impaction noted, you might also need to give a sodium phosphate enema in addition to the laxative, but this can be very traumatizing for a young patient and so first line should be aimed at the least invasive option. Should there be no response to initial and supportive treatments, refer these patients to pediatric GI where they can be worked up further and treated as necessary. Your patient is a neonate with trisomy 21 who has not yet passed his meconium. He has bilious vomiting within hours of his first feed and has no abdominal distension. Abdominal x-ray reveals an air collection seen as usual in the stomach but also in the proximal duodenum without any distal obstructions or sign of malrotation seen. What is the first-line treatment for suspected diagnosis? Nasogastric tube decompression and IVF, or intravascular fluids. This patient has duodenal atresia, which is a congenital malformation of the intestinal lumen that leads to obstruction and the presence of a double bubble sign on abdominal imaging. Commonly, patients with duodenal atresia will be described with a history of other congenital anomalies, such as trisomy 21 or Down syndrome, or even polyhydraminose in utero. Bilious vomiting on the first day of life with or without abdominal distension and failure to pass meconium should heighten this on your differential. Treatment is with nasogastric tube decompression and IVF with surgical repair once stabilized. Differentials include malrotation, which typically presents with infants who have bilious vomiting within the first week of life and concomitant acute bowel obstruction, intussusception, which typically doesn't appear until about five months old, and pyloric stenosis, which typically presents within two weeks to two months old with non-bilious vomiting after eating and palpation of a small mass in the right upper quadrant, 
And finally, Hirschsprung's disease, which also presents with a failure to pass meconium with bilious emesis and abdominal distension, but imaging will reveal a distal obstruction and typically there will be a discussion of either hypertonicity on anorectal manometry, visualized transition zone on barium contrast imaging, and or absent ganglion cells on suction rectal biopsy. Your two-year-old patient presents with his parents for new-onset painless brick-colored stools. Suspecting this patient has the most common congenital anomaly of the GI tract, what pathogenesis led to this patient's current diagnosis? Incomplete obliteration of the vitiline duct. Around seven weeks gestation, the omphalomesenteric or vitiline duct should obliterate. However, if this remains patent, it's termed a Meckel's diverticulum. This is the most common congenital anomaly of the GI tract. Remember this diagnosis with the rule of twos. It presents within two years old, defect is two feet from the ileocecal valve, it's about two inches long, it affects 2% of the population, and can possess two epithelial types of cells, both gastric and pancreatic. This can lead to the current jelly or brick-colored stools, indicating the painless rectal bleeding from ulcers of the gastric tissue within the diverticulum. The most sensitive test for this is technidium scan, or TEC-99, also known as the Meckel radionucleotide scan. Definitive treatment is with surgical excision of the diverticula. Complications can arise from not identifying or treating this condition, such as intussusception, bulbulus, or even a hernia. The next section, we're going to group together some of the 6% EOR topics, which include neurodevelopment and psychiatry, which together will make up 12% of the EOR. Your four-month-old patient is brought in for evaluation due to his parents' concern over sudden jerking spells, which can present with both flexion and extension of the head, neck, arms, and trunk, lasting for a few seconds each time, and more notably in clusters when they are awakening or falling asleep. EEG, or electroencephalogram, reveals diffuse giant waves with irregular multifocal sharp spikes and waves during these times. What diagnosis do you suspect? Infantile spasms. This can peak around 4 to 12 months old and is a type of epilepsy that can lead to clusters of jerk-like spasms with abnormal chaotic waves seen on EEG that confirms the diagnosis. A major risk factor for developing this is tuberous sclerosis and developmental regression needs to be observed for to rule out West syndrome. Treatment includes administration of ACTH, steroids, and even benzodiazepines to control these seizures. Differentials include other infantile seizures, including febrile seizures, which are the most common cause of seizures in infants and young children who are otherwise healthy, but typically is going to present with that classic tonic-clonic presentation in the setting of a very high fever. Generalized seizure disorders, such as absent seizures, typically manifest as staring fits, and atonic seizures usually manifest as those drop attacks. Additionally, we want to rule out meningitis or encephalitis if a patient has neck rigidity, fever, or altered mental status that seems to be out of the realm of what you would expect in a postdictal state. As with other seizure disorders, acute treatment for seizure differentials includes short-acting benzodiazepines such as lorazepam or even diazepam should you need to administer the treatment rectally. Your neonatal patient has physical findings of epicanthal folds, a broadened nasal bridge with hypertellurism, a large tongue, single palmar crease, and a large gap between the hallux and second pedal digit. Auscultation of his heart reveals a harsh holosystolic murmur and ophthalmic exam reveals presence of brushfield spots. His parents had a quad screening done in utero, which revealed increased beta HCG and inhibin A with a decreased unconjugated estriol and AFP. Additionally, patient had been found to have increased nuchal translucency on prenatal ultrasounds. Amniocentesis and chronic venous sampling were both deferred during pregnancy. Given the suspected diagnosis, how should you now confirm your suspicion? 
karyotyping or FISH, which is the fluorescein in situ hybridization. Given this patient's physical findings and abnormalities on prenatal screenings, the diagnosis to suspect is trisomy 21, also known as Down syndrome. This is the most common chromosomal disorder and most common cause of mental developmental delay. The most common associated comorbidities in patients with trisomy 21 include atrial septal defect, duodenal atresia, and sterility in males. These patients have an increased risk of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, early onset Alzheimer disease, and atlantoaxial instability, so risk reduction and regular follow-ups are warranted. Other important chromosomal abnormalities to be familiar with include sex chromosomal disorders such as Turner syndrome, which is karyotyped 45X0 and is seen in females with primary amenorrhea and hypogonadism due to the gonadal dysgenesis. Kleinfelter syndrome is karyotyped 47XXY and will typically be present in stems with males who have delayed puberty, gynecomastia, and infertility. Your patient is a 15-year-old female with concerns regarding severely depressed mood and anxiety that occur monthly. History reveals cyclical anhedonia, decreased appetite, sleep, and concentration with bloating and tenderness in her breasts that begin about a week before menses and improve a few days after menstruation begins. What is the first-line treatment for this patient's diagnosis? SSRIs. You can do this continuously or one week prior to menses each month. This is the first-line treatment for patients with premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which can be diagnosed when the patient has cyclical dysfunction and mood with at least four more additional symptoms, which even can include physical symptoms that improve after the onset of menses and are absent postmenstrually until about one week before the next cycle. Other medications to consider include low-dose combination birth control, SNRIs, or even GNRH last line. Be careful with this question as sometimes you can be asked what will best treat their condition versus the symptom. If asked about what best treats their symptoms, you need to see what their chief complaint is. If the chief complaint is physical concerns like bloating or breast tenderness, consider OCPs over SSRIs. If the chief complaint is a mood disorder like in our patient, the first-line treatment should focus on moods like initiating SSRIs. While evaluating your 12-year-old patient, his parents expressed concern over behavioral issues and frequent calls home from school. History reveals for over one year he has been getting in fights at school, has been caught stealing, and last month was found to be vandalizing a building. He states he does these things for fun and doesn't see any problem with his behaviors, but he does hate getting in trouble. What psychiatric disorder is he at increased risk for in adulthood? Antisocial Personality Disorder this patient has conduct disorder, which is manifested by a period of time of at least one year with at least one conduct disturbance in the past six months, which includes at least three of the following, aggression or violence to people or animals, destruction of property, deceitfulness, theft, or serious violation of the rules like skipping class or running away from home overnight. In general, separate conduct disorder from oppositional defiant disorder by the presence of violating the rights of others, which will not be seen in ODD. You may see a lack of remorse in patients with conduct disorder, and the earlier the onset of conduct disorder, the more likely the patient is to develop antisocial personality disorder once they reach 18. Treatment and management should be focused on psychosocial interventions such as parent-focused interviewing, CBT therapy, and multisystemic therapy, which is patient-specific and typically caregiver-driven, in which the behavioral corrections occur in individual, school, and family settings. All right, congratulations, you've made it to the rapid review. Here we'll mix in high yields from all the topics already covered and include topics left remaining, including orthorheumatology, which is 5% of the exam, endocrinology, which is 3% of the exam, hematology, which is also 3%, and urology renal, which is another 3%. Buckle in and let's get it. 
What is the primary cause of respiratory distress syndrome of the newborn? Pulmonary surfactant deficiency, and the leading risk factor for this is prematurity. What should you administer to close contacts if a child is diagnosed with bacterial meningitis? Rifampin. What is the first-line treatment for impetigo? Topical, mupirocin, or TMPSMX, aka Batrum, if MRSA is suspected. What is the first-line treatment for specific phobia? Exposure therapy. Which reduction technique of nursemaid's elbow, also known as radial head subluxation, has a higher initial success rate? Hyperpronation, and this is done by holding the elbow with one hand with the ipsilateral finger on the radial head and using your other hand to hyperpronate the patient's distal forearm until palpating a click. What should you suspect in a febrile patient with lethargy, poor feeding, and seizures following a spontaneous vaginal delivery from a patient with a vesicular genital lesion during birth? Neonatal herpes simplex virus leading to herpes simplex meningitis or encephalitis, which is the most common cause of encephalitis and is a high risk of morbidity and mortality. When should APGAR score be taken? Minute one and minute five after birth. You should do again 10 minutes after birth if the initial two scores are poor. What is the most common viral cause of acute pharyngitis? Adenovirus. What is the most common childhood behavioral disorder? ADHD, which can present as hyperactivity and impulsivity and or inattention. What might an infant develop should IM vitamin K not be given after delivery? Hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. What virus causes molluscum contagiosum? Pox virus. What prophylaxis should a neonate receive if the mother has hepatitis B surface antigen present at the time of delivery? Hepatitis B immunoglobulin and vaccine should be given immediately after delivery in addition to the regular immunization schedule with follow-up screenings between 9 and 12 months old. How do you describe the murmur of a patent ductus arteriosus? Continuous machine-like murmur at the left subclavicular area. What parasitic disease can be diagnosed with the Scotch tape test? A pinworm infection, also known as enterobiasis vermicularis, which is a type of roundworm. What should you suspect in an obese adolescent male who presents with chronic, progressive, painful limp and decreased passive internal and abduction range of motion of the hip? Slipped capital femoral epiphysis, or skiffy. Bilateral hip x-rays like AP and frog leg x-ray will show the classic ice cream slipping off a cone sign. What is the most common cause of bacterial meningitis in neonates? E. coli, group B strep, and listeria. However, the most common cause of meningitis overall is going to be viral, most commonly due to enteroviruses. What differential of epiglottitis presents with a hot potato or muffled voice? Peritonsillar abscess. What asthma classification is given to those symptomatic one to two times a week and wake up with symptoms one to two times a month with an FEV1 to FBC ratio 80? Mild intermittent asthma. 
What intoxication should you suspect in a 17-year-old patient with drowsiness and meiosis? Opiate use. This typically presents with constriction of the pupils and drowsiness, and this can lead to bradycardia, hypotension, coma, and even respiratory arrest. What are the treatment options for coarctation of the aorta? Early presentations should be given prostaglandin E1 to keep the ductus arteriosus open, and should congestive heart failure suddenly present, give diuretics and ionotropic drugs like dobutamine to improve the ventricular function. Definitive treatment is by repair, either by balloon angioplasty or with a stent or with surgical correction. What should you suspect in a toddler with metaphyseal fractures and bruises in various stages of healing? Child abuse. What is the Centaur criteria for strep pharyngitis? Absence of cough, presence of exudates, fever, and cervical lymphadenopathy. If three of four of these are present, you have met the criteria to get a rapid streptococcal test, which is more sensitive, and then a throat culture later if the RST is negative, which is the gold standard. When should birth weight triple? Within the first year of life. What degree of lateral spine curvature indicates need for surgical correction? Over 40 degrees. If only 20 to 40 degrees, physical therapy and bracing is warranted. What should be suspected in an at-term neonate who presents with increased work of breathing and progressive tachypnea within two hours of delivery with chest x-ray revealing bilateral perihilar streaking and hyperinflation of the lungs? Transient tachypnea of the newborn. What should be given to patients with laryngotracheitis that have tachypnea and costal retraction? Racemic epinephrine nebulizer can rapidly vasoconstrict upper airway blood vessels to reduce the swelling. Corticosteroids IM or IV can also be given later to decrease hospital stay and readmission in moderate cases, while mild cases might only require observation and a cool mist humidifier. What should be suspected in a 10-year-old with progressively worsening bone pain in the left lower extremity at night with x-ray showing sunburst appearance of the affected area? Osteosarcoma. What is the first-line treatment for oral candidiasis? Topical nystatin, with second line being PO fluconazole. What reflex is seen in full-term infants that results in sudden abduction of arms, extension of legs, and flexion of the hips when the position of the head changes in relationship to the body? Moro reflex. This typically disappears around four to five months old and is most prominent within the first month of life. When should infantile strabismus disappear? By six months old. Longer than this, and they need a referral to ophthalmology. What is the most common complication of varicella? Soft tissue infection. When should you start receiving your annual flu vaccine? The first one is given at six months old, again at one years old, and then every year then after. When should introduction of solid foods begin in infants? Four months old. Remember, don't give any honey until after one years old. What is the most common benign bone tumor in pediatric patients? Osteochondroma. What numbered exanthem is caused by parvovirus B19? Erythema infectiosum, also known as fifth disease or slap cheek disease. 
What should be suspected in a patient with short stature whose actual age is greater than the estimated bone age? Constitutional growth delay or puberty. If the opposite is found and bone age is greater than actual age, suspect precocious puberty or hyperthyroidism. If bone age equals the actual age of the patient, suspect familial short stature syndrome. What is the most common location of an aspirated foreign body? Right main bronchus. What is the most common first sign seen in patients with acute rheumatic fever? Arthritis, which usually develops about 21 days following a group A strep infection and will respond to anti-inflammatory agents. What should you suspect in an asthmatic patient with white plaques in their oral mucosa that bleed when scraped? Oral candidiasis or oral thrush, and you should suspect this in patients who use inhaled corticosteroids or even still breastfeed. What is a complication of using intranasal decongestants for over three days? Rhinitis medicamentosa. What is the most common pathological murmur in childhood? Ventricular septal defect. What is the most common cause of impetigo? Staphylococcus aureus. What condition is associated with Wickham's triad? Lichen planus. When should bacterial conjunctivitis over allergic conjunctivitis be suspected? Bacterial conjunctivitis will be purulent and crust or glue the eyes shut when asleep, typically bilateral on presentation, but may present unilaterally at first. Allergic conjunctivitis is going to be bilateral, very pruritic, and typically you'll see watery or clear tearing associated, and you might have cobblestoning mucosa on the inner eyelids. What is the most common endocrine disease in childhood? Diabetes type 1. What is the most common malignant posterior fossa tumor in an 8-year-old who presents with vision changes like diplopia and an unstudied gait in the setting of nausea, vomiting, and a headache? Medulloblastoma. What are the criteria for Kawasaki disease? Fever for over 5 days plus 4 of 5 of the following. Bilateral bulbar conjunctival injection oral mucosal changes like fissures of the strawberry tongue, peripheral extremity changes like the erythema of the hands, feet, or even periungal desquamation, and polymorphic rash and or cervical lymphadenopathy. Remember, again, Kawasaki's disease is also known as mucocutaneous lymph node syndrome, and this is the number one cause of acquired heart disease in pediatrics as it is a high risk for coronary artery aneurysms and even myocarditis. What should you suspect in an infant male with excessive bleeding after circumcision? cephalohematoma following birth, or possibly even hemarthrosis. Hemophilia. What should be suspected in a patient with a history of strep who presents with hematuria, hypertension, and periorbital edema? Post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. What is the first-line management of epiglottitis? Securing the airway. What is the diagnosis you suspect with a pediatric male who has genital pain and swelling with the inability to produce a proximally retracted foreskin. Paraphimosis. What is the most common cause of otitis externa in an immunocompetent patient? Pseudomonas aeruginosa. What is the first-line treatment for hyperkeratotic papules with underlying pinpoint hemorrhages when scraped? 
watchful waiting and reassurance for most pediatric patients as warts typically resolve within two years. How is the diagnosis of a tinea infection made? KOH prep of the skin scraping revealing hyphae. What is the most common site of anterior epistaxis? Kisselbach's plexus. What cancer should be suspected in a young patient with trisomy 21 with new onset limp, bone pain, bleeding, lymphadenopathy, and hepatosplenomegaly with peripheral smear showing proliferation of blast? Acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and again, that's the most common cancer in children. Good job, everyone. We are finished with our high-yield pediatric rapid review. As always, you can access resources for this episode and transcripts at www.passpackpodcast.com. Be sure to like, comment, review, do all the things. Don't forget to follow the Instagram page at passpack underscore passport for even more questions, skills reviews, story quizzes, and healthcare updates. I've been so behind with posting since starting my new job, plus starting as a peer editor for iHuman Cases, but I think I'm finally starting to get a good schedule down, so hopefully I can start bringing more consistent content for you all there with episodes and posts. However, this does conclude the major first part of season one for the show as we have now reviewed all the high yields for each EOR. Keep a lookout for the second part of the season dropping soon, which will go in-depth with each system, starting with high-yield cardiology. Thanks for tuning in and supporting the show. Don't forget, you can get 10% off of your Smarty Pants subscription with the code PASSPACK and 20% off of the Pygmonic subscription with the code PASSPACKPASSPORT. And that's one word. Keep that study hustle going. I'll see you next time and safe travels. Thank you for joining me today on PassPack. I hope you enjoyed the show and learned something along the way. Until next time, safe travels. As a responsible disclaimer, PassPack is not intended to be used as medical or legal advice, and though I try to always keep it educational and evidence-based, any and all opinions or viewpoints shared on PassPack do not represent those of my employer or the profession at large.